What is going up? What is going on, everybody? There are fun- what? Why are you laughing? <laughs> what is going up? You said what is say- going up? Yeah. What is going oh. up? Oh. All right. <laughs> All right. Thank you for laughing. I didn't realize I said that. <clears throat> I mean, you can keep it in the cold open there. What is up? What is going on, everybody? There are some important things we have to talk about here today. Those are who, what, when, where, and why. But maybe most importantly, how. You'll find out all of those things after the song. Did I mess that up again? Did I say five things and then I added a sixth thing? No, I just... Uh, where okay. you come up with this shit, I have no idea. It's from the who, movie. What, when, where, why, and how. Oh, That's how okay. he starts the movie. Touche. <laughs> good, good point. <laughs> Welcome in, everybody, to another episode of the Threequel. As always, I am your host, Ethan Klein, here with my co-hosts. Brad Miller and Mike Duranick. We are talking 2006's Inside Man today, directed by Spike Lee, starring Denzel Washington and Clive Owen. Guys, how are we doing? Fantastic. Doing really well, Ethan. Good, good. I'm glad to hear it. So I texted you guys as I was watching this movie when... Uh, I think it was Sunday morning as of this recording. And all I said was this movie is so damn good. Uh, I just moving forward with this episode, I just want it to be known that my perspective is this is, and it's not even close, my favorite movie that we have done on this podcast. I don't know where you guys are going to be at. We'll find that out. But I'm just laying that out there to say where I'm coming from. This is Far and away, head and shoulders, my favorite movie we've done on this show. If you're looking for a response to that, I'm I'm nodding. I know people cannot see that. Um, yeah, without giving it a whole lot of thought, I guess I'd have to agree with you because uh, on the other one, I had Deadpool listed as my favorite so far. Um, I don't know that The Matrix overtook that. And I do like Inside Man more than Deadpool. So, yeah, I'm right there with you. I don't think I'm that high on it or as high as you guys are, but I do think it's a solid movie and I am really uh, excited to hear your discussion about it. Uh, Ethan, in particular, just as passionate as you were about it, as you were rewatching it, I'm excited to hear you break it down. Yeah, we will definitely break it down. We will get into all of it, all of the, all of what makes this, in my opinion, like I said, definitely the favorite movie down here. And I think, one of the more underrated movies at least since 2000 um i I guess like throwing in my lifetime only adds five years but this is i think a criminally underrated movie and we'll talk about awards and things like that as we move forward but let's start off the way that we normally do in uh giving the fans an insight into how we came to this film originally uh mike how did you uh, see Inside Man for the first time, and what did you think about it then, leading into this rewatch, or was this your maiden voyage? Well, that's that's the thing. Every once in a while, with this, I get to see a movie maybe for the first time, and this is one that I had heard of. I, I was familiar with it when you said Inside Man. I immediately thought Spike Lee, Denzel, but I had never watched it, and so this was great. I actually uh, not only watched it, but went back and and rewatched the back half of it a second time. Um, in this, the course of uh, preparing for this podcast. And so um, this was the first time I'd watched it. I, I'll say it's it's a solid movie. My initial impression is um, I really like some of the uh, thought processes that go into setting up um, the, the robbery and everything that goes into um, that. I like the details at the end when they start to realize how much of it was, um, I don't know, a hoax along with it. Uh, I think the first half of the movie left me a little like it was dragging, but then it's made up in the second half, which is why I went back to watch that second half when it really starts picking up. 
Bradley, how did you come to see Inside Man for the first time? Um, I believe that I saw it in the theater. Um, I can't remember. This was back when um, there was still a dollar theater um, to go to. I can't remember if I saw it in the first run or if it was, you know, a little bit older when it came into the dollar theater. But I remember seeing it there. Um, I have watched it several times, um, probably four or five. And uh, yeah, I think one piece of advice I would give to Mike there is I think this is one that gets better as you rewatch and pick up on some uh, some of the nuances that that they add and um, or not that they add because they're in there, but as you that you notice as you rewatch. Yeah. So for me, I did not see this in theaters. Um, I do not know the exact age that I was when I saw this for the first time, but I do know that the copy of it that I have on DVD is the same. It's the same DVD that I had the first time I saw it. I know that I was visiting uh, my grandparents one summer and we went to the store and my grandma said I could pick out some movies for us to watch during the week. I doubt she knew that this was rated R when I picked it out, but you know, grandma, grandma's cool. Grandma's cool. She's she, she'll, she'll let me watch something as long as it's a good movie. And uh, I don't know if she was pleased with some of the language that got used in this film, but Got it, watched it. I was probably 12, 13 years old. Um, well, actually, yeah, probably about 12. And I just remember liking it a lot. And then, like Brad said, the more I've rewatched it in the now 15 years since, uh, my, my love and appreciation for it has just grown more and more. So uh three definitely three different ways that we we've gone about uh interacting with this movie since it came out but here we are now with our rewatch or for mike his his first watch and let's dive in so like i said directed by spike lee denzel washington clive owen the the two main characters there and the this movie opens so interesting with he doesn't give away everything, but the monologue that Clive Owen has at the beginning does explain some of the more intricate parts of his plan. You just have no idea what he's saying. And I know there are some movies that do this and sometimes it's clever and sometimes it's not. I think this one is obviously I I've said how much I enjoy this movie. This is one of the ones that I think is clever in the way that they kind of give you this information at the beginning uh, with no context to really understand what he's saying. What was what was your guys' opinion? And Mike, obviously, this being your first time watching it, Brad on the rewatch. How do you feel initially about Clive Owen's character with this introduction, and then at, at the beginning when they first start to take the bank over, when you're first introduced to him? How are you feeling about his character for the first 15, 20 minutes of this film? Well, I think as you kind of alluded to with that open as he's going through all the different questions, it's setting up, or at least the way I, I read it, right? Setting up him as the storyteller. He's the narrator. He's going to take you back to show you exactly uh, why this happened, why this went down this way. And so naturally, I'm automatically drawn to him trying to understand the motive behind the why. So I think that opening did a good job of setting that up for me. Um, and as I'm reflecting on his character throughout, that seems to, I mean, that's the central question, right? That's the, the question that Denzel's character is trying to get to as well is why is this guy playing this the way that he is? Yeah. I think, um, for me, like you just, they really set it up to where like this guy is going to be a horrible, horrible person, like take no prisoner, like you, I don't know. You kind of get the sense when he first takes over, like this is going to go one of two ways. It's either going to be super smooth and like nobody's going to get hurt because this guy's smarter than everybody else. Or this guy is just going to kill everybody because this is his swan song. Like I get this sense like this could be a really bad situation if this guy 
loses his his cool um because it it seems like that's what's driving him is he's the coolest guy in the room and if he loses that edge like he's just gonna be gone and no one's gonna survive and i think he has that potential through the whole thing but yet he's like under constant control of himself like it's it's a really cool dichotomy to see a guy willing to go to these lengths that he does and yet he's under he's in complete control the whole time it's very cool yeah i i think it's really interesting with and and Brad and I coming from the perspective of rewatching this and Mike being introduced to it for the first time, knowing where it goes, it is interesting to watch that this first segment of the film, the first act, because he does come across in such a brutal way. They are so surgical when they take the bank. He beats the crap out of Peter, uh, the, the guy with the great ringtone um, for lying to him. And, and I don't think, I mean, and, and I, I, I tried to catch this because there are certain people that are on the bank robber's side that never are actually with them. I don't think he's one of them. I, I think Peter is actually an innocent person the entire time. So re- and really by the end of it, that's the only act of violence he commits towards someone who is not in on the plan. Uh, but, but that is so brutal in the way, you know, he goes in and closes the door and talks to himself but again, too, that's part of the act. He's trying to convince all of these people that he is at any moment willing to snap. And what we, the final result, as we'll get into knowing why he did this and what he ended up doing, what we end up having is what we've talked about previously on this podcast with, you know, a Hannibal Lecter, even with Deadpool himself, someone who, you know, not a not a well. Hannibal Lecter is a terrible person. Deadpool, not a great person, but we're drawn to them for two hours because they're so interesting, because they're so magnetic. And really, the there's lines blurred between should we cheer for this person, yet we are. And for me, this is just another example that we're running into here on the threequel. He, he hits all of those notes. Yeah, you know, I think that you, you raise a good point there uh, about that singular act of violence and obviously in the first half of the movie the way that they play everything it seems as if the only reason there isn't more violence is that everybody just gets in line very quickly but there's no doubt in your mind that there could be a lot more violence right uh obviously with the way that the that the plot shifts in the second half of the movie it calls into question everything you saw before that how far would they have been willing to go and it did Cross my mind, and, and I don't know the answer, uh, how much of what happened in that office uh, was actually him attacking the guy versus how much of it was staged with the door closed. Uh, and that raised that question of, was that guy in on it or, or not? Yeah, was, yeah that, that's why. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I Mark. was just going to say, uh, I can't remember. I'm trying to flash back through the scenes, and I don't think that like you're saying, I don't think that he was ever shown with them or implied to be a part of their group. Um, and I think if he was, I'm they they probably would have made it look like it was going to be a beatdown. I don't know that he would have really taken it to that level, um, but I don't think he was ever shown with them. So, yeah, I think you're right that he was just because of the ringtone and the guy losing his his cool but also uh trying to set the tone for the others in that room like you fall out of line this is what's going to happen um but i think he made it so gruesome because he wasn't going to use his gun and they um needed to kind of show that that edge that he was willing to walk well, and perhaps, I mean, that's why as he goes in there and Ethan, you mentioned him talking to himself, it, it almost could be like he's psyching himself up because he realizes I've got to do this. I've got to make this stick. I've got to make this land. Yeah, absolutely. And then, I mean, with that too, and this is, I mean, just a part of the filmmaking that makes this so good when he then comes back out and interacts with the older woman Again, not knowing his intentions, not knowing where he's coming from, that adds so much tension to that interaction with her refusing to follow his rules that there's just these character moments that keep getting built up with Clive Owen's character 
uh, Russell. And, and really I just being the antagonist to Denzel Washington, I think he just hits every moment. Let's flip that coin. Let's talk Denzel Washington. Obviously. I mean, everyone knows Denzel's career, uh, the multiple Academy award nominations, the multiple wins. And when I say, uh, when I, when I talk about this movie being underrated, uh, this movie was not nominated for a single award on any front, which I think is insane. I mean, obviously, I know we know where we've been talking about Clive Owen, and we'll get into his performance even later. But Denzel, I, I mean, this is just another peak Denzel performance to me. I, I can't look away the way he's commanding all of the other actors that he's working with, the interactions with Clive Owen. I mean, this is just Denzel just right at home doing his thing. And I don't see a false note from him at all. Yeah. I was trying to uh, look back here. Um, I don't know what else he was in right around the same time, but um, I know that when I think of this performance, it takes me back to training day. I think he, he hits on a lot of the same notes um, with the personality that he's um, portraying. And I, I think, yeah, this is a really good stretch for him um, uh, during this time. I'm, I'm, I'm really, uh, it's, it's not his peak. I mean, he's had better roles, but um, definitely, yeah. definitely a great film. Yeah, I, I agree. I think what it does is it shows how effective he is as an actor in the sense that he does control every scene that he's in. Um, he's magnetic. And so, yeah, while this is not his peak performance, I agree with you, Brad. There's also no doubt that the fact that he can dominate a movie in this way when it's not his peak performance says an awful lot about uh, about his, his acting ability. And he's, he's incredible. Well, and he's one of the rare actors who... In Training Day is obviously the kind of turn it up to 11 uh, of this, of the type of performance he can give with, he goes over the top and he oversells certain things without ruining the scene or the movie or it becoming comical. You know, we, we've given love to Nick Cage before, right? But when Nick Cage turns it up to 11, we remember it because we end up laughing at what we're seeing on screen versus where when Denzel does it, there's just something, it doesn't do that. It doesn't make a joke of what's around him. It just adds a little more flavor to the scene. And that's a rare thing for an actor to be able to go over the top in that way. And he does it uh, plenty of times in this movie, uh, but it just hits home. Uh, in a way that I don't know many other actors could. We've had that conversation before on this podcast. Who could play this role? Who couldn't? Obvi and there's nothing about this role that only Denzel could do this. But I think only Denzel can do those big over-the-top moments that he goes for without just completely ruining the scenes. Well, the, the thing that's cool about his performance is um, when he isn't sure of himself and isn't sure like where he's going or, or how to figure out the crime. That's when he's his bravado's over the top. It's like, he's overcompensating for uh, not knowing it's not until he starts to figure it out that he actually becomes more calm and collected. And you see like that, uh, that, that coolness factor come out of him because then he's like, he gets super arrogant and kind of, you know, he's got the, the hat and the walk and like he, he he's got that down. So it, he goes over the top when he's actually at his lowest. And it's it's kind of a, a cool thing to see how he how he shows those uh, emotions. Yeah, agreed. So this is quite the cast. We definitely don't have time to go through everything, but. Uh, kind of like we've done in the past, I'll just I'll give you guys an opportunity to maybe highlight someone that stuck out. But this is a very impressive cast list. We've talked about the two main guys, Jodie Foster, her second appearance on the threequel podcast, uh, the female lead film. <laughs> Do you not like Jodie? Well, I realized watching um, Silence of the Lambs. 
and then it, like I I go through her her movies and different. I yeah, I just I I am gonna proclaim I am not a Jodie Foster fan. I don't I don't That's know. I, this is definitely this performance is really the exact opposite end of the spectrum than Silence of the Lambs. Um, I mean, you know, Silence of the Lambs clearly out of her her character is out of her comfort zone the entire time just trying to kind of piece things together and in this she is uh certainly not that type of person but uh, so we know that brad probably won't be highlighting her performance um no i actually but christopher the only person i think could have played that role better than jodie foster was probably stop stop I had a I had someone that's been listening to our podcast um was trying to figure out uh what the inside joke was about and then they thought the funniest thing though is when they hear the sound bite and then right after it they hear Ethan say stop it stop it cuz we kept saying and he didn't want to have to keep editing it so hearing Ethan say stop it stop it was their was their favorite part of uh of the whole well you've once again once again delivered on that there brad (laughs) so that's a good thing no you can't (laughs) well as the editor i suppose uh you you can uh you can do that if you want um you know with jody foster i I think what you were getting at ethan is that uh this being the other end of the spectrum uh from silence of the lambs i agree if if this is what you were saying it felt to me like i didn't feel like she was doing a whole lot with the part i felt like she was just performing it but compared to to owen or to to denzel in their roles i didn't take a whole lot of energy off of her character it felt like there maybe could have been more should have been more there yeah i really i think what they were trying to give us and i mean I, obviously, I could be completely wrong, um, but I feel like because by the time her character is in the film, we've been given more reasons to suggest that Clive Owen is not just this terrible, brutal murderer. Obviously, we're still cheering for Denzel. We don't know yet all of the issues with Christopher Plummer's character. So I, I think they're kind of they give us her to give us someone not to like until we learn more about really ultimately the worst person in the film being the late great uh, Christopher Plummer who just passed. I think it, uh, it, I don't, I think it might've still been 2021. It was just within the last few months that uh, we lost Christopher Plummer. So uh, he obviously shows up in this Willem Dafoe who now, so this is where I do remember this as a kid, I remember every time I saw Willem Dafoe in a movie, he was a bad guy. And the name of the movie is Inside Man. So I was convinced that I knew the twist of the movie before I saw it. I was like, Willem Dafoe is going to be the bad guy. I already got it figured out. And I thought I was so cool. I thought that was what the Inside Man thing was, that it was a cop. Had that all figured out. Obviously, that does not come through. Uh, and then really the last big name uh, that is in this is – and I'm – there's no way I'm going to get this right. I've never been able to pronounce this correctly, but Chewitel Ejiofor. About as good as I'm ever. Well done. Well done. Uh, and he has gone on to have quite the career as well. So pretty heavy hitting cast uh, top to bottom. We did touch on Jodie Foster. Did anything stand out to you guys from the other three names? Um, the other three being, uh, Christopher Plummer, Willem Dafoe, or Ejiofor. So we're not talking about Clive yet. Um, well, because I dislike Jodie Foster and her performance so much that all three of them, uh, definitely did do, um, better or could commanded the scenes better. I think that, um, yeah, like we find out some of the stuff about Christopher Plummer through the thing. And then it's like, it kind of reflects on how bad is this lady that she's trying to like, you know, broker this 
deal for him and keep this thing quiet, you know, um, where if she really knew what was going on. She just like let this guy, I don't know, be exposed. Um, so she had a, definitely a cloudy moral compass there, but, um, yeah, as far as job or acting performances, I, I, I think Christopher Plummer does, uh, really, really well. And I think that he's right up there, probably third billing on this for me behind Denzel and Clive. Yeah, I would agree. And I would also echo Ethan, what you said about, uh, Defoe typically being cast in the bad guy role. And as I was watching it through, having just watched it for the first time, I was trying to figure out where the twist was. And the thought did cross my mind that he or another cop, um, particularly after the pizza scene, um, you know, who, who is letting them know what's going on here, uh, was kind of the angle and trying to figure that out. But I thought on the whole, a really solid cast. Um, and if, you know, Jodie Foster's performance is maybe our least favorite, but if that's the low performance, I think it speaks also to the quality of the performances in the movie. Yeah, I completely agree with that because I, I mean, she does not give a bad performance. I, they just really give her one note to hit and she continually hits it. So I completely agree with, uh, how you worded that there, Mike, that that says more about the rest of the movie than it does just about her performance. So that, that covers uh, the, the main cast of characters there on screen behind the camera, obviously Spike Lee, um, someone who, even if you don't know movies, you know who Spike Lee is. Uh, He's definitely one of those guys. Um, he has a big persona, whether it be showing up at Yankees games or Knicks games, uh, whatever it is, he has always been, uh, at least for my lifetime, a public figure. I have always known who Spike Lee is. Now, in terms of his films, I want to be very careful how I say this, especially because I know Brad will not skip out on an opportunity to insinuate some things about me as I say this careful Spike Lee doesn't make movies for me Uh, on the whole in in general Spike Lee's films are not made for a white male in his 20s or when they were coming out when I was you know 15 a teenager this movie I think is the most of all of his films that does speak to my demographic. And that is not a problem with Spike Lee. He is a black filmmaker who wants to make films for the black community. And he should absolutely, absolutely do that. And I know he's an incredibly talented filmmaker, but this to me is the film that reaches across demographics more than any other film he's made up to at least up to this point in his career. Um, so yeah, I'm, un- I'm unpacking that a little bit. And I think where I would, I think I navigated that minefield as well as I could. I, I, I think so. I will say that you, you clearly did not say anything wrong. Um, a couple of thoughts, I guess I would challenge. I'm guessing anybody, um, Spike Lee is making movies for anybody that wants to pay to see that movie. And the the dollars what's going to win out i think what you were trying to imply or get at is like he's not going to make a movie through your lens you're not going to see things the way that he sees them because he's you know obviously different than you he's not only older but also every life experience he's had is coming from a different perspective as you so he's going to direct it write it whatever i don't know he's not a writer direct it capture the film in a way that is going to be different than if I said, Ethan, tell me a story about a bank robber hiding inside a bank and blah, blah, blah. It's going to come out a little different. Um, But I think too, basically what I'm hearing you say is like, this is the first movie where he didn't focus on maybe, I don't know, racial stereotypes or, um, different things and you know the the um the things he focused on were more about the story versus anything racial and um it i don't think it necessarily 
you I think your words were it crossed several uh, or how did you word it about boundaries? Um, he reached out to Demo. Yeah, he had, I think nope. he reached out to fewer demographics because he just kind of stayed in this lane. It wasn't about reaching different ethnic groups. It was just this is what I'm going to make and this is where what it's going to be. And I think it was yeah, job well done. I think he did he did great. And there's no way there's nothing about this that would make me say you know, if you asked me who directed this, I probably would have named thirty people before I got to Spike Lee because it just doesn't seem like something that that he it doesn't compare to other things he's done so i think that's a great way of saying kind of what you were saying there is this this is just a different type of film for him well i think as i look at his filmography here and i'm curious if you guys feel differently but this appears to me to be by far his most mainstream pop culture movie out of everything he's done and he's not that type of director again possibly by choice, possibly by what comes uh, across, you know, his, his plate. But, um, you know, he doesn't direct a lot of movies that are, you know, you're not finding him taking a swing at like the Marvel comic, uh, you know, realm of things. And he's not going to do a lot more of the uh, mainstream pop culture things. He he tends to, to do movies that speak to uh, a more critical, uh, you know, analysis of society in a lot of ways. And that's his his M.O., that's his niche. And if you look at his filmography from 86 through the present, he's been incredibly successful at it, Um, has a number of films that are incredibly powerful. Um, But this movie, in that sense, doesn't necessarily fit with the rest of that because it does feel like there are any number of other directors who probably could have directed it. And you would have said, "Okay, that that makes sense. Yeah, I think. Part of it, too, I mean, there are some stylistic things that he does, and like Brad said, that don't really appear in this movie that also make it more palatable just to me as a viewer. Like, I I had never seen Mo' Better Blues, and it was on TV a couple weeks ago, and I tried to watch it, and I don't know if you guys have seen that. I couldn't get through a half hour of it. Uh, there, There are just things that Spike Lee does stylistically that just do not appeal to me. And again, don't appear in this movie. This doesn't feel like a Spike Lee, there's one moment, there's the moment right after the hostage is killed where Denzel steps out of the the truck, the police truck, and it's like he's being dragged on a trolley. He's not walking. That's the mm-hmm. only five seconds in this movie where Spike Lee does something Spike Lee. And other than that, that, that really does not exist. And that's a great point, because at least for me, as I was watching it, that moment, I mean, as soon as you said right after that, I started nodding because that moment felt out of place with the rest of the movie. Um, And it was intentional. It was the shock he was going through. It was actually a a very effective use of that in that sense. But it did stick out so differently from everything else around it in terms of the way it was shot. Yeah. And I think I did want to walk back to and touch on. Um, obviously, yes, like Spike Lee is known for making films uh, that touch on social commentary and racial themes and things like that. This time, what I noticed more than any other time watching this film is that they do touch on a lot of racial things in a very interesting ways. There are a lot of moments in this movie where racial biases come out in the characters like when uh they they release the hostage when they have the bank the box or whatever around him that they've bugged and he has his turban and the way that those policemen react to him in a very very racial way there there are a few other times that things come out and they they happen throughout the movie and it's not until almost the very end when Denzel is finally having a conversation with the police officer that has been around the whole movie. And he's asking him to tell him a story about when he got a gun pointed at him and he says some uh, racial slurs. And finally Denzel just kind of drops that, like you can leave the, we're fine. We can just talk about them as people. You don't have to use the racial slurs. And is that, that I don't know why that stood out to me, but it was interesting that those themes were there through the whole movie. And it was almost like Denzel 
wasn't going to have that conversation with anyone. And he was just so worn down from the entire experience that he finally was like, dude, can we just stop acting like this? Can we just have a conversation? And so I thought that was interesting. On the Spike Lee discussion, I, I'm curious as we, we kind of look at this again, where would you, I mean, what movies would you place ahead of this in terms of kind of his peak? Because um, I, I have one that is more of my 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 favorite, but then another that uh, I think is just clearly better than this. I'm curious what you guys think. Well, I think you kind of have to go with Malcolm X as being his um, uh, most well-known probably biggest film um my favorite is he got game and uh, i really enjoyed black klansman um when i watched it those are the ones that kind of stand out to me as uh, uh i guess my my favorite spike lee films um this being probably on uh his mount rushmore of my favorite spike lee films this would be in the top four yeah i would say this is my personal favorite i think that he got game is of the Spike Lee movies that obviously you can tell are Spike Lee films, He Got Game would be the one that I would go back to. Black Klansman, I think, is the all-around best film of his that I've seen. If you're talking about uh, accolades and things like that, that was what he won his only Academy Award for for writing. But Inside Man is just going to always be my personal favorite, and I don't really see a way that he would ever top it for me. Yeah, I mean, I think you you guys named all the same movies I was looking at. I would have to put, you know, Malcolm X at the top uh, of the list, but I agree with Brad, and He Got Game is personally, you know, my favorite, even if it's not the most well done out of all of his movies. It's probably the one I enjoyed the most. But this one certainly... Uh, having not seen it before right up in there in the top four or five for sure for me. So that covers, I think pretty much everything that we can say about Spike Lee. I do. We don't have to get into this. I just want to give a shout out. The guy who wrote this film, his name is Russell uh, Gerwitz. Maybe I pronounced that wrong. He, wrote two episodes of a TV show that only lasted one season. He wrote this, and then he wrote Righteous Kill, which is one of the worst movies I've ever seen, with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. That's it. That's his entire career. Wrote on a TV show. In this, I say hit an absolute home run. The writing is probably my favorite part of the entire movie, just the dialogue in and of itself and then crashed and burned and then walked away. Like that's a heck of a career <laughs> to, to peak tank and then leave. That's, that's impressive. So two television show episodes yes. and then this comes to this and then managed to launch this into uh, writing a script that got uh, Pacino and De Niro back together again for all the wrong reasons. Right. And then was like, yeah, I'm done. Yeah, then he's just out. It hasn't done anything since quite an interesting career there. You're right. <laughs> I mean, I would take that. I mean, you know, he made a good enough amount of money off of those, maybe not the TV show, but for sure the two movies that, you know, he's set. He's fine. Like, he can go off and do whatever. I mean, I suppose you could say lots of people um, could write a movie uh, that would have Pacino and De Niro and have it be good. It takes some skill to write a movie that's going to star Pacino and De Niro and have it flop. That is very, very true. So um, we had kind of talked off screen before we hit record on this about the music. Really, the only song that makes its way in is uh, Peter Hammond's amazing ringtone, Gold Digger. So not necessarily the soundtrack, uh, but I mean, I will just say in terms of the score, does such a great job of breathing life into the scenes of this movie. The, The score itself I think does do a fantastic job of setting the tone in each scene, uh, giving, adding intensity to the moments that need it, being kind of just in the background in the moments that don't. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know where you guys are on that, but that's really all I have to say is that the score just does an amazing job of accenting every scene in this film. Yeah, I agree. I was kind of not focused on what you were saying too much though, is the way Mike was standing on the screen. I could just, 
staring at his nipples the whole time. But, um, but yes, the score and Mike's nipples both are um, really, really great. Really locked into my uh, to my screen there, Brad. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a little cold in the basement right now. What what can you do? Uh, the the furnace hasn't uh, the furnace hasn't adjusted to the fact we had the first warm day of uh, fall spring. Um, beyond beyond that, though, uh, what I would say is that the score I think does a very good job of accenting the movie in all of the right places, and it's a it's a great uh, composed score. Um, I don't know that there's a whole lot more to say to it, but I imagine if you had the soundtrack, it would be a, a nice one to pop on in the background uh, periodically or while you're driving, just to, to be able to relive yeah, the movie I think through the, the only music. Thing lacking in the score is a song from. My- <laughs> he's not giving you the pleasure of the response <laughs> making my notes for editing and moving on uh speaking of moving on uh what we like to do is take a look back at the time that this film came out so 2006 uh, we have not yet done a film from this year so brad i will toss it over to you and i promise that as we leave this segment i will do it with as much enthusiasm as possible uh, what was the world like in 2006? I don't think Michael Jordan did anything significant. Uh, well, if he did, Mike will be sure to tell us. Um, let's start with uh, some famous people that died that year. Um, really, the as far as names go, this is one of the years that not as many people that have affected my life uh, passed away. There's really... Uh, three names that kind of stand out to me on the list. Um, and that was uh, Kirby Puckett, the baseball player. Um, Joseph Barbera, um, you know, he's a cartoonist. Tom and Jerry, the Flintstones. And then um, Gerald Ford, uh, the last president that was president before I was born. I have lived through every president since then, starting with Jimmy Carter was still in office when I was born. So uh, Gerald Ford passed away. Um, last president, like I was saying, that um, was not anywhere in my uh, my 40 years of, of life here. Um, I know we like to uh, look at some of the highest grossing films. Uh, interesting year for that. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, which... I believe this is the second time that Pirates of the Caribbean has led our list. So for a film um, collection, I guess you would call it, uh, very, very effective in what it was trying to accomplish in making some money because um, that that has pulled in some dollars. Um, a Night at the Museum was number two, Cars 3, X-Men Last Stand was four, and... Uh, Da Vinci Code was five. Cool. Um, oh, a comment on uh, X Men: Last Stand. What were your What was your reaction to that one? I that's I mean that's one of the worst comic book movies that's been made since. I mean, two thousand was when comic book movies really started having a chance to like succeed, and that's absolutely. I feel one like of the worst. Uh, you and Hunter had a. Didn't you guys have some sort of debate on that um, a couple of years ago? And of course, I'm right. Yeah, we did X Men. X-Men versus the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And uh, what was the result of that? I can't I can't really recall. Uh, the result, I, it was determined that I won having the side of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And, I mean, still, like, it's... Objectively, it's not even a close competition. Especially now, that was three years ago. Now that we've seen the conclusion of the first big arc of that, like, it's, it's not even close. Yeah, the the gap has only widened in favor of uh, Marvel. Although everything wraps back around, and now the X Men are, yeah. you know, fully. Yeah, in now the there's not going to be a separation. Marvel, or at least they will be soon, yeah. as they. Uh, moving on with some 2016 facts, we had your guys's favorite moment of the year: the St. Louis Cardinals winning the World Series, uh, Super Bowl champs. So maybe my favorite moment of the year: Pittsburgh Steelers winning that um this was a lebron led miami heat team that won the nba championship 
Um, and it was one of those fun years where the Florida Gators won both the basketball and uh, NCAA football championship. So that was um, interesting there. Um, let's see. I had a couple other things to hit on. Let me scroll up here just a little bit. Did you did you uh, jump to 2016, Brad? Because uh, ironically, you're right. It was the Miami Heat who won in 2006, but it was not a LeBron James led team. That would have been Shaq. Well, good, good catch there. I uh, yeah, I got my decades. I got my decades mixed up there. Um, and as I was saying it, it didn't sound right. But I just thought, you know what? If I say it loud enough with, and with enough confidence, it might just seem true. So. You, you almost you, you almost had me convinced, and I was like, "Well, there's there's no way." Yeah, 2006. I, I was thinking Le, LeBron was only like 21. Hey, LeBron probably still could have done it at that age. So, uh, who knows? If he had had a, if he had had a decent team around, um, him, a couple other possible. things. This is the year that uh, George W. Bush signed the U.S. Patriot Act. Um, I thought that was interesting. Um, Twitter was created in this year. Uh, Google purchased YouTube for um, back then the very small number of $1.65 billion in stock. Um, and then uh, one thing, too, that I found interesting was the one billionth song downloaded on iTunes. And I want to give you guys each. Normally, Ethan comes up with a trivia question. Um, I'm going to throw one out there. Give me the band that that uh, played or sang the billionth song downloaded on iTunes in 2006. Was it a song um, released? Well, the in band was yeah very popular then. I don't know what the song was, but the band was very popular okay. then. If you want to throw a guess out there, I will guess you too. I'm I'm gonna go well, with Coldplay. That was my Mike Durinick, you have won the trivia question. You got that one correct. Um, Ethan throwing in there that that was his second guess was oh so close. Um, and lastly, we always throw this in there. Crash won the Oscar for Best Picture. But the one that probably mm. jumped out more to Mike and I that year was The Office. Uh, was the one the Emmy for Outstanding Comedy Series and rightfully so. So, I'm I, an office yeah, fan. I guess I guess you are. I I know that. Uh... Right. I mean, I wasn't watching it when right. I was 11, but yeah. Anything uh, else that you guys came up with for 2006, or was there any Michael Jordan related facts, Mike, that we need to know about? Well, nothing in the the realm of Michael Jordan that comes to mind. But I'll give a shout out to a, a very fun Chicago Bears team. Uh, that year, the Steelers might have won the Super Bowl. That was the 2005 regular season. But the 2006 regular season was a, a dominant Bears team led by Erlacher and company. And probably most memorably, the game against the Arizona Cardinals that led to Denny Green's. They are who we thought they were meltdown after just an incredible defense and special teams led comeback. So well, and hey, special shout out to them. Facts that aren't correct. Um, the Miami Heat won the championship that year led by Michael Jordan. So <laughs> if, all, if only, only, only Tom Brady can effectively go to Florida, <laughs> retire and still win championships. There we go. All right, Brad, thank you so much for bringing us that look into 2006. I appreciate you and love that we what, have. The what was that all about? That. Uh, let's dive. Cause last week you said oh, I wasn't enthusiastic like... when I, that's right. You were you were like, oh, that is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that was so much fun. Uh, all right, let's let's get back into the world of Inside Man as we wrap up this episode here with with, with some final thoughts. I, I do want to pose a question, uh, and then we'll we'll do uh, one of our games. Mike, I'm interested, and maybe Brad, if you can remember back to the first time you saw it, but Mike, since you're the, the one with the most fresh take on this, 
did you see the twist? At what point did you see the twist coming? Did you think that they had actually killed a hostage? Just some of those bigger moments. Were you at all clued in on what was actually going to happen? And when was it if you were? Well, the hostage scene, I'll start there. Uh, obviously, in terms of just the abruptness of it, it certainly makes you feel like they they did it. But something felt off to me, um, just a little off, like, man, that seems out of character. I think, you know, right around the time that uh, Denzel's character starts talking through about the, the plane and why the plane and that sort of stuff, I really started going, okay, there's there's got to be something more here, uh, more to this. And with that, that's when, you know, the pieces of why did they have them change into all of this? Uh, why were they making such a big deal about switching the the people out and kind of putting different people in the different rooms? It started to feel like the their getaway plan. And I think at that point, he'd already said that I'm going to walk right out the front door that started to piece together for me of like, oh, they're going to try to f pull this off that they all leave at the same time and therefore they can't figure out who is who. Um, so I started to piece that together. A as far as like the the hook regarding uh, Plummer's character, I didn't know exactly what it was, but I imagined it would be something along those lines uh, that this is why he's trying to keep this buried. Whatever it was, it had to be fairly heinous and it seemed like they were really kind of moving towards that look. Absolute power corrupts absolutely um and, and that's where, where he was the big bad yeah i don't um i don't remember back to when i first watched it so it's hard to say um if i saw the twist coming or not i think that um the, i mean the title of the movie alone um either implies that you know it, it's uh there's someone involved on the inside helping them, you know, a policeman, something like that. But I think I started to piece it together when I realized that they were reconstructing that room. Um, and I, I knew that that was going to um, play a major part in it. And I started, I think I was like, oh yeah, they're just, they're shifting all of this forward. There's going to be, you know, um, something to do with that. And then I, you know, I don't, I don't know that I, um, knew how long he was going to be in there and does it and i don't know if it says um the amount of time he spends before he walks out but um yeah i definitely saw pieces of that coming um watching it back then but I, it's hard to remember um being that it was you know that many years ago i think someone at one point makes an offhanded comment right when he's walking out that it's a week or, or something mm -hmm. to that. They, they mentioned that he's going to smell bad because he's been in there a week. So, I mean, that's, that would not be fun. I mean, I'm sure they made a lot of money, but sitting in that, that small space for a week, uh, that would be rough. I don't think, I honestly, thinking back on it, I am pretty sure I was convinced that they had killed someone. I was mad that they did because I was starting to like him as a character and then they did that. But um, just, and I think what ends up being so great about this is the name does make you think, oh, there's some kind of huge twist. And it's not so much that there's necessarily a big plot twist. It's where are they going to go next? You're, the, the twist is more just finding out how they're going to execute this plan. And that, to me, is where the entertainment comes. And even on rewatch, because it's just so much fun watching how smart he is and how well he can execute uh, this plan. So uh, let's get into one of our games, the Rotten Tomatoes game, uh, where Mike and Brad try to guess the Rotten Tomatoes critic score of the film, see who can get closer, uh, but to win, they have to be within 3% either way. So nobody won last week. Mike won the first week. I don't know what that means for who has to go first. You guys can come to a gentleman's agreement on that. But what is the sitting Rotten Tomatoes score for well, Inside If we Man? alternate, um, it would be my turn to go first, and I am going to say 82. Yeah, I was going to be in the 80s as well. Um, last week was higher than I thought. I'll go, I'll go 83. I'm going to nudge just above you. <laughs> And by that 1%, Mike does win. It is sitting at 86. 
percent. <laughs> so Mike just sneaks into what can be declared a winner. That that's a that's a high score for a film. Um, so when I say underrated, I, I guess I mean when I'm looking back at that year of film, um, The Departed came out in 2006, ran away with all the Academy Awards. I'll never say that this movie should top The Departed in that, in terms of that. But across the board, I feel it was a weaker year in film. And for this movie to walk away with no accolades, you know, Spike Lee directing, I absolutely think the writing should have been given consideration the cast as a whole does a good enough job to maybe even be considered for film. Now, back then, there was only five films nominated. Absolutely, if it was the rules of the day and ten films can get nominated, it should have been in there. Denzel and Clive Owen bouncing back and forth off of each other. The fact that this movie walked away with nothing, I think, is criminal. And it is, But it is sitting at 86%. So critics, at least maybe now, 16 years later, uh, do, 15 years later, do appreciate it in that way. Yeah, 86 is pretty high. We've had a couple now in a row, I think, that have been up in the around the mid 80s. So we're on a pretty good streak right now with the the critics thing and uh, uh, the critics score. Next week will be interesting. That that one, you guys might have a tougher time with that guy. I don't know what what that film is sitting at currently, but um, definitely not a uh, well as well known film uh, for sure. But we'll get into that in a little bit. So. Let's do a uh, favorite scene, favorite line. Uh, let's, let's start with favorite line. Uh, and which whoever would like to go first. Uh, my favorite line is the entire film. Uh, so I'll spend the next couple minutes narrowing it down to one thing. But uh, whoever would like to kick us off. Well, I, I really liked uh, this exchange between, uh, you know, Madeline White and, and Keith Frazier between uh, Foster's character in Washington's. And uh, she says, you know, well, detective, there are matters at stake here that are a little bit above your pay grade. No offense. Just coming off very pompous and everything. And he just looks back at her and says, well, why don't you just tell the mayor to raise my pay grade to the proper level and problem solved? And so I think a lot of the social commentary that also goes into there, you know, here's this high paid fixer getting pulled in. Uh, the hardworking detective, and she's just trying to brush him off and say, you know, hey, none of your business. It's it's above your pay grade. I thought that was a good uh, comeback uh, from Denzel's character from Frazier. I actually have two that I want to share. Um, one was um, Madeline White and Arthur Case talking back and forth, and she says, well, I'd love to tell you what a monster you are, but uh, I have to help Bin Laden's nephew buy a co-op on Park Avenue. And he says, if that were true, you wouldn't tell me. And then she says, we're listing you as a reference. Um, I thought that was really, really well done. Um, and then just a, a silly one that made me laugh. Um, and I, I'm bringing it up because I think it's perfect for his character and the delivery of the character. Um, Frazier walks into the Four Seasons and the maitre d' says, good afternoon, sir. Do you have a reservation? He says, looking for the mayor. May I have your hat, please? No, you cannot get your own. And it just, it's, uh, I don't know, just the way that character played the whole movie. And I thought it was a, um, I don't know, just this really fun exchange that kind of showed you who that character was. Yeah, I, keeping with that theme, my favorite funny Denzel line is uh, him telling Jodie Foster to kiss his black ass. That, that I was dying just at that. And that, again, it's, it's the same thing just with his character and the way Denzel does things. I, he, he delivers that perfectly in what could be a line that almost ruins the tone of the film. And he makes it funny. My actual favorite line of the film is one of the monologues from Dalton Russell, Clive Owen's character. It's not the opening one. It's at the end. He says, I'm no martyr. I did it for the money. But it's not worth much if you can't face yourself in the mirror. Respect is the ultimate currency. I was stealing from a man who traded his away for a few dollars. Uh, and then the, there's more to it. But that was really hit, just him admitting and really answering the question for us. Because it's the question I posed to you guys at the beginning. Is he an anti-hero? Do we cheer for him? Do we not? He's answering the question for us. He says, I'm not a martyr. I'm not a hero. I did this for the money. But. I'm also going to make sure that this terrible person gets what's coming to them because at the end of the day, 
I'm going to be able to sleep at night, and I know this guy can't. So that that was my favorite line of the film. And we can just go in reverse order. Favorite scene, it's close because there is there is a break there to split the two. I'm actually going to lean towards the second interaction uh, in person that Clive Owen and Denzel have just right directly after the the hostage gets killed. Like we had talked about earlier, and like Mike said, it's such a shock that that shot the way they do that of Denzel moving, but it does show you like he has now completely broken. He's lost all control of this. He has no idea why this is happening. And then he just cuts loose on Clive Owen's character. And again, is almost pushing him like, no, do this now attack me. Now I want to see if you will be willing to do that. And then the realization that Clive Owen has of really the reason he's done all this is he knows how smart Denzel Washington is and he is trying to get him out of the situation so that he doesn't ruin his plans. You know, he, he caps the scene by saying, tell them to send someone sane next time. He doesn't think Denzel's crazy. He thinks he's smart and he's truly afraid that Denzel being around will end up costing him this plan. So that that moment that that excitement that that both of them get out of that scene is my favorite scene. uh my favorite um mostly because when i watch films like this i like to play detective and see if i can figure it out and i remember the first time watching it um and it it is the whole leaving the bank with the chaos and everyone kind of running out and not knowing what's going on and then that segueing into um all of the uh, cross examinations of uh, people, questions back and forth, and getting their their um, uh, their feedback and their answers to the questions, and just trying to figure out, okay, how did this guy pull this off? Where's he at? Who's involved? And just that that whole maybe ten minute segment is my my favorite part of the movie. The the and then all obviously him getting up and leaving the bank is the climax of that is, um, is really cool. So that's my favorite part. Well, you guys kind of nailed my first two favorite scenes. The only other one that I had, uh, down was the first interaction in person between, uh, Frazier and Russell, um, culminating in their tumbling fight down the stairs and, and everything that went into that. And just seeing Denzel Washington and Clive Owen go kind of, literally but in acting terms right blow for blow there was also good but i had had the the closing scene and the, and the big reveal uh him walking out after a week the the bump into washington's character at number one and then uh the scene from the hostage uh killing through being number two i, I thinking back i am disappointed that none of us had the uh juan and jesus line as our favorite line I really think that that added just some complexity to the film that uh, not a lot of other scenes did. Um, let's we'll do the trivia question. Then we'll see if we give it our stamp of approval. I think I know where that's headed. Uh, the trivia question, pretty simple this week, pretty easy. Uh, you just got to get the number right. How many films directed by Spike Lee has Denzel appeared? in? Oh, wow. I'm going to say, well, no, Mike has to go first so I can edge him out by one. Well, I'm going four. I'm, I'm actually glad you said that because I was going to say five. So the answer right. is four. He got game, Mo Better Blues, Malcolm X, and our film. Oh, you, but you said A. Washington, not Denzel Washington, Man. right? Because you counting his son and Black Klansman. <laughs> no, I just said Denzel. But that would be that would have been that would have been a that would have been a well structured <laughs> trivia question. His son, by the way, phenomenal actor. Uh, he he is absolutely oh yeah on the way to following in his father's footsteps. Uh, to you know his first three big movies being Black Klansman, Tenant. And then a film that just came out on Netflix called Malcolm and Marie. Dude's a powerhouse. I didn't really like Tenet, but he's uh, definitely got the acting gene from his father. So 
Let's put a complete wrap on this stamp of approval. I'll start it off. Like I said, this is my favorite movie that we have done on this show. So absolutely it is getting my stamp of approval. If you haven't seen it, see it for the first time. If you've seen it before, watch it again. Enjoy knowing how it ends and seeing how it comes together, knowing that final thing, the twist and turns that it takes, the acting performances. I don't have a false note here. I don't have a bad thing to say about it. Absolutely. I'll say, yeah, I actually um, had a conversation with a friend of ours about it, and he asked um, if we were doing the movie this week. I said yes, and he said that he could not find it on a streaming service, uh, and he has not seen it. And I said, you absolutely have to see this. Um, it's one that um, I think you'll really enjoy. So by far, in a way, gets my stamp of approval. Stamp of approval. Just got to give a shout out to, I'm sure, a few because it was streaming on on Peacock for those who yeah, would like to see it. Um, yeah, I I give it uh, I give it a, a thumbs up as well. Uh, having not seen it before, uh, it once I really got into it again, I liked it enough that I quickly went back and was like, I don't have time to watch the whole thing again, but I'm going to watch the back half a second time um, because it was that enjoyable. So uh, three for three, I think. We have yet to have a thumbs down uh, on this segment, and I don't foresee that happening next week. Next week, we are going to do Mike's pick for the month of March, V for Vendetta, uh, our second comic book film. The second time we're going to at least hear Hugo Weaving uh, speak in a film, uh, not that we see him in this film, uh, but absolutely looking forward to that one as well. Uh, very different film from Inside Man, uh, certainly. Uh, but we like to keep everyone on their toes and change it up. It will still be a great conversation. That's next next week. This week was Inside Man. Goes three for three on the stamp of approval. Everybody should go check it out. Thank you for checking this podcast out. Uh, join in the conversation. Let us know what you thought. Leave a comment uh, on whatever podcasting app you're listening to us on. Uh, like, review, however you want to interact. Please do that. That is always great for us to see. Other than that, I'm Ethan Klein for Mike Duranic for Brad Miller. We hope to see you next time. Where do you come up with this shit? I have no idea.